invite you to turn in your Bible tonight to the book of Romans chapter 4. Romans chapter 4, as we look at the God who justifies the ungodly. Uh, my burden tonight is uh, a couple things. One is the, just the immensity of the truth that we're about. Uh, what we're going to be talking about tonight is in really the essence of the Christian faith, and it's the thing that distinguishes a Christian faith or the gospel from every other religion in the world. Um, so that's one, just the weightiness of the, of the uh, material. The other thing that's really on, on a burden for me in a sense is the, um, we're going to be talking about things that many of you have heard a thousand times. Uh, or others of you have heard uh, numerous times, and you're thinking, well, there's, there's nothing new here. And I just want to encourage you to, to lean into to the Word and, and pray that the Lord would, uh, by His Spirit, uh, make this old gospel sound wonderfully, marvelously new, or, or some new light shed on it. I think one of the joys of heaven will be continuing to marvel on the gospel. We're not going to say, oh, we, that's old stuff. Let's talk about something else. Uh, we're going to be just seeing all the full glory of it in ever greater ways, and I hope that's what happens here tonight as well. As you know, we're uh, in a series called the, Orders, uh, the Order of Salvation, and I have there in your outline just the things that we've already covered. We've, we've talked about union with Christ, which is, in a sense, the chain of salvation, uh, the whole thing, being saved as being in Jesus. But then what we're looking at is how does God uh, apply the work of Christ to people so that they're saved? And we looked at effectual calling. When God uh, sovereignly calls a dead sinner to life the way he called Lazarus out of the tomb. We've looked at regeneration. Uh, God making a dead person alive and changing that heart of stone and, and giving a heart of flesh. We've looked at conversion, both repentance, a turning from sin to God, and faith, uh, where we are, the faith being the instrument of uh, union with Christ and, and the means by which we're justified. We'll be looking at that tonight. Well, we, we've come then to justification, which deals specifically with the question, how is it that sinners can be declared righteous or innocent before the throne of God? Uh, you, we went through the, uh, we read the Westminster Shorter Catechism question and answer. Uh, what is justification? It's an act. It's not an ongoing thing. It's a once for all declaration that God makes, an act of God's free grace, wherein he pardons all our sins, accepts us as righteous in his sight, only for the righteousness of Christ imputed to us, given to us freely, to our account, and received by faith alone. Well, tonight what we could do is we could, uh, we could take the, all the different pieces of justification. We could look at the ground of justification. We could look at the instrument of justification. We could look at what the act is itself. And we could just pull apart all the different things that the Bible says about the doctrine of justification. And it would be worth doing. However, that's not what I'm going to do tonight. What I would like to do tonight is take one verse, Romans chapter 4, specifically Romans 4 verse 5. So that you have one verse in your mind that you could maybe point to when you're talking with an unconverted family member or friend or co-worker. One verse in your mind that if someone asked you, so what's unique about Christianity? You have a verse in your mind, in your heart, that you can open your Bible and point them and say, I don't know a lot about the Christian faith. There's, there's many things I don't understand, but... This is what I'm convinced is true, and this is why I'm a Christian. That the God who is, is a God who justifies the ungodly. I'd like you to turn to then Romans chapter 4 
And we'll pick it up actually in, in 3, verse 21, so we get the flow of the text here. Let's give our attention to God's Word. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, though the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there's no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation, which means a, a turning away of wrath, by His blood... To be, to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. What then becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? By law of works? No, but by the law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Or is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also. Since God is one who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. Do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. Well, what then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but his, as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works, blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. Praise God. Let's ask for his blessing. Oh God in heaven, now as we come to your word, I pray, oh, let you would open our ears to hear it and hearts to believe it. And oh God, that we would taste the beautiful good fruit of your gospel afresh tonight. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Last week, if uh, you were here, and if you remember, uh, I told the sad, uh, tragic story of uh, Robin Williams. Uh, New York Times reporter Dan uh, Itzkoff reports uh, that over the final year of Williams' life, um, he was just really struggling with guilt. Um, really uh, exacerbated by uh, the conviction of that he had wronged his second wife by divorcing, divorcing, divorcing her to marry his third wife, and they had uh, two children. He had two children with his second wife. Um, he um, had received the diagnosis of Parkinson's, and so uh, he was faced with the end of his life and realizing that he had really um, wasted much of it. Well, I received last week an email. As you know, Williams uh, took his life then in August 11, 2014. Uh, last week, I received an email from someone who listens on, uh, via live stream in another, another state and uh, who just filled in some part of the story that I obviously did not know, just thought it was fascinating. He writes this, uh, just prior to his death, Robin Williams contacted a friend of mine, a retired Reformed Baptist pastor in Florida who runs a book service. 
Uh, one of Williams' friends apparently had purchased one of these old Puritan and Reformed reprints and gave it to Williams, who was very much affected by it. He, so he called um, this old retired pa- uh, Reformed Baptist pastor, and he asked my friend repeatedly about forgiveness in Christ and if this was genuine and something definitive. He had been through everything psychology had to offer and wanted some form of proof of justification. The retired pastor was much moved by the conversation. I just want you to think about that. After a a career of tasting everything that the world has to offer, fame, pleasure, power, wealth, all of it, at the end of the day, the one burning existential question of Robin's life was this, is it possible to be forgiven? It's all that mattered. It really is, I believe, the deepest existential question that man faces. Our our deepest question is not about the existence of God. We know there is a God. He's revealed himself in creation. We've been stamped in his image. The reason people say they don't believe in God is because their foolish mind has been darkened by sin. But we know there's a God. And the deepest question is not, is there a moral law according to which my life will be judged? We know there's a moral law. It's been written on the human heart. Who told Robin Williams that he had sinned and needed to be forgiven? Who told him that what he had done in divorcing his first and second wife was a violence? His Hollywood friends certainly didn't tell him that. They're doing it all along. His psychologist certainly didn't tell him that. So who told him? Well, nobody had to tell him. His conscience told him that. His conscience wouldn't let him forget it. You see, the the deepest question that we face as people made in the image of God and who've sinned against the law of God is, can our crimes be forgiven? Can our perversions, our violence, our sins and iniquities and transgressions, all the sin that is in you, all the sin that belongs to you, Can that be pardoned? Can that be rectified and removed so that you come out from under the condemnation of the law and the judgment of God and and you can be reconciled to God? And and friends, that, that is the question that the doctrine of justification addresses square on. Of how is it that you, a, a sinner by birth and by behavior, that our, our sin isn't just about the things that we do. We, uh, we do the things we do, the sinful things we do, because of what we are. Sin is a status. It's a status under the law, and we are born under that law, in that status under the law. And the things, the wicked things that we do, then we do because of our perverse nature. So, so. The doctrine of justification then answers the question, how can you, the sinner by birth and behavior, um, how can you be made right with God? Because the law of God demands that justice be satisfied. The law of God demands that guilt be punished. And heaven only allows the righteous. And God will only be uh, dwelled with the righteous. So how is it possible for you, the sinner, to escape the condemnation that you so richly and rightfully deserve and be allowed into the righteous throng of heaven which you so richly and fully, thoroughly do not deserve? And that's the wonder of the doctrine of justification. Just very briefly, uh, we need to just 
stop and look a moment at the literary context. What, what is Paul doing here in Romans chapter 4? Well, as you know, the book of Romans is Paul's magisterial display of, uh, of the gospel. He's, he's just laying it out in all of its glory. And in doing so, he's, he's already explained in the first few chapters the universal plight of mankind. We read it earlier in this service that there's no one righteous, not even one, And in verse 19, he goes, now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those under the law, so every mouth may be stopped. In other words, everybody, uh, the law comes, and and everybody who wants to protest that they they, they might be good enough, or they've done this, or they've done that, the law just comes and says, shut up. If you're not perfect, you don't have a claim. The soul that sins, even once, shall die. No one is going to be justified by the works of the law. No one. So stop it. Zip it. Be done with it. That's what he says in the first part. But that's not where he stops, you see. He goes on and and, and talks about the glorious good news of what God has done for sinners that he might give salvation as a free gift. And now he's going to move on in chapter 4 and, and, and further expound on this wonderful gospel by showing, first of all, a mistaken assumption about God, and then the, uh, the, the principle of uh, the grace, uh, the principle of grace and the God of grace, and then the fruit or reward of grace. Let's just start then in chapter 4, verse 1, with this mistaken assumption. So he asked the question, verse 1, what then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? Now you might be thinking, why in the world is he talking about Abraham? If you were a Jewish listener listening to Paul uh, speak the gospel, you'd be asking, well, what about Abraham? What, what about Abraham? You, you talk as though Abraham never existed. When you say that that Jews and Gentiles alike are under the law, what about Abraham? You see, for a Jewish person, Abraham was your ace in the the hole. He's he's what you you, uh, refer to. Am I a sinner as a Jewish person? Of course I am. But God made a promise to Abraham to bless Abraham and his descendants after him. And guess what, Paul? I'm a descendant of Abraham. And so I'm simply appealing to God's own word to be a God to Abraham and a God to Abraham's children. I'm Abraham's child. Therefore, God is my God. You see, they appeal to Abraham as their righteousness. They assume that their ethnic identity with Abraham makes them somehow right with God. And, uh, and it, uh, John the Baptist, for instance, goes directly to this false assumption in, in Matthew chapter 3, verse 7, and he, and he sees the Pharisees and Sadducees coming, and he says, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath of God? And don't even think to say that we are children of Abraham, or Abraham is our father, because God can raise up children from Abraham from the stones. In other words, who cares? Your ethnic identity linkage with Abraham means nothing. And so Paul takes on Abraham because he has to take on Abraham when he's talking to a Jewish audience. But, but notice that he's not only bringing up Abraham because um, that the Jewish person saw him as the foundation of their righteousness, but the Jewish people saw Abraham as the example of the, uh, of the principle that God justifies the obedient. And so the Jews, even some rabbis, taught that Abraham did not sin. 
And they, they point to Abraham's obedience. God called him to go out of Ur. What did Abraham do? He went out. God says, go into this land. I will show you. What does Abraham do? He goes. God says, offer up your son. What does Abraham do? Offers him up. There's some pretty impressive obedience in Abraham's life. And the Jew would point and say, see, Abraham is exhibit A, the evidence that God justifies the obedient. One rabbi wrote, Abraham was perfect in all his deeds and well-pleasing in righteousness all the days of his life. If you ask a Jewish person, why did God love Abraham? He'd say, well, because Abraham, believed, Abraham obeyed. Why did God bless Abraham? Abraham obeyed. But you see, that's not just a Jewish understanding of how it works with God. That's the common human understanding of how it works with God. If you ask people, who does God really love, the good people or the bad people, people are going to instinctively say, well, he loves the good people. God justifies those who are good enough. That's, that's what Islam professes to believe. If, you're, if you keep the laws, you get the blessings. That's what Mormonism believes. A lot of confusion about Mormonism. Well, they believe in the same God, don't they? No, 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 they don't believe in the same God. They believe in the God who justifies the righteous. In fact, Joseph Smith, the founder of Mormonism, was so uh, appalled at Romans chapter 5 that when, when Mormonism... Uh, if you look at a Mormon translation of the New Testament, you'll see in Romans chapter 4, verse 5, God, they've inserted, inserted the word not. So when Paul says, God who justifies the ungodly, they put God who does not justify the ungodly. It just makes no sense to them. Smith wrote this in the Book of Mormon, uh, Book of Mor Moroni, 10.32, you read, If ye shall deny yourselves all ungodliness and love God with all your might and mind and strength, then His grace is sufficient for you. Now, that's comforting. <clears throat> if you just live perfectly, the grace of God is sufficient for you. You see, the natural human bent is to assume that that's how it works. The way to find blessing from God is to be good, is to be obedient. God justifies the innocent. God justifies the worthy and the obedient and the good. And it makes perfect sense because that's what we would expect of any earthly judge. There's a judge in town and a, a, a criminal is brought in front of him and all the evidence shows he's guilty. Here, your honor, is the video of him robbing the bank. It's him. The evidence is irrefutable. And if the judge would say, yes, I, I see that, and he says to the man, it's clear you did rob the bank, didn't you? And the man says, yes, I did. And the judge takes his gavel and says, innocent. There'd be an uproar. And what if he made a habit of doing this? Every time you bring a criminal in, the, the judge verifies the truth of the case, verifies that the man is guilty, and then declares innocent. Well, we'd say it's a miscarriage of justice. The man has to go. A judge is there to uphold the law. Well, God is too. But he does it in a way we would never, ever would have imagined. You see, it's this assumption that God justifies the innocent, that God blesses the good. It's that assumption that drives people to despair when they come to face to face with the reality of their own sin. It's the, that's what can make you absolutely hopeless when you really face the truth about you. Just put yourself in Robin Williams' shoes. 
He's under profound conviction of guilt. He's wasted his life. And now it's, 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 it's over. He's got the, the, the diagnosis of Parkinson's, and he's spent his years in cocaine abuse and alcohol abuse. He's trashed the relationships. He's wounded the people who've loved him, and his conscience is torturing him. So where do you go? What do you do? Is it possible to be forgiven? How could God pardon him? And he's begging an old pastor to prove that, that somehow it's possible. You've got to prove it, though. I need evidence. How is it possible? Because God justifies the righteous, right? And the answer is no, Robin, no. God, that's the mistaken assumption of the world. The glory of God is that he justifies the ungodly, the wicked. If he only could have believed that. You see, it's so hard to believe that. Our legal nature fights against believing that. Our pride fights against believing that. It just doesn't seem possible. But that's exactly the point that Paul's making, and he's making it to a Jewish audience. And so he has to bring up Abraham because that's what they're they're trusting in, and that's their example of of the false premise. And so Abraham says, well, what do we discover? Let's let's talk about Abraham. What do we discover about, what did Abraham discover about how to be made right with God? And verse 2, he says, well, if Abraham, if, if he discovered that his own obedience was the issue, if that gained the blessings, well, then Abraham had a right, he had a boast. He, he had a reason to go to God and say, uh, Lord, listen, I kept the law. You know, you can slap your tickets down on the counter of Chuck E. Cheese and, you, and get your reward. He would have a boast. And Paul shivers at the thought, not before God. God is not some Chuck E. Cheese attendant standing beyond the counter waiting for you to tell him what gift you'd like because you merited the reward. Who's ever given to God that God should repay him? He is no man's debtor. Not before God. So what does the Scripture say? That's a great question. The Scripture does not say Abraham obeyed And it was credited to him as righteousness. The scripture says, Abraham believed. Abraham believed God. And it, that faith, was credited to him as righteousness. It was counted to him as righteousness. You see, the the Jewish assumption is just flat out wrong. The world's assumption regarding the nature of God is wrong. God does not count human obedience as righteousness ever. No one will ever be justified by the works of the law. Abraham, you see, believed in God. And it is faith that God counts to him as righteousness. Now, why does that matter? Because that could just sound like a pecuniary, little, fine, theological, systematic point that you theological geeks just uh, like thinking about. Why would this matter to the hoi polloi? Why would it matter to the masses? Well, because the whole gospel hangs on this. Either salvation, you see, is a free gift that God gives graciously to the ungodly and the unworthy, or salvation is a wage that God pays to those who've earned it, and it's one or the other. It's either a free gift God gives to the undeserving and unworthy, or it's a wage he pays to the worthy. And so Paul puts before us the principle of grace, chapter 4 and 5, and he sets before us two men, the one who works and the one who does not work. 
He couldn't be more explicit. Here in verse 4, you have the one who works. Um, this is the man who, he's, right, he thinks he's kept the law. And, and so he, he goes and he takes his obedience, his righteousness, and, and he gets his wage. And Paul just uses a, a, a everyday a defi- a, um, a picture of this. So he says, if you, if you work for a week and you go to your boss and, and, uh, he, and he pays you, he doesn't say, just because, you know, I'm just feeling so gracious today, here's your, here's your check. No, he's paying you your due. He owes you. Your wage is not gracious on his account. It is his obligation to you. And that's the same in salvation. You see, if, if we're actually able to, to work and uh, to attain the blessing that way, well, then our work is a wage and God owes us. And do you know there's a lot of people in the world who, who think exactly that, God owes me. They don't know they think that until something goes horribly wrong in their life and then they say, God has violated, he's betrayed me. And that reveals the, that underlying assumption. I've been doing my best. I've been keeping my nose clean. I've been sacrificing. I've been trying. I remember just heartbreak, listening on the radio once. I don't remember where I was driving. I've told this story before, but it just, oh, this poor lady. She had called into a, just a talk show talking about generic religious ideas. And this lady called in. Her son had died in a uh, plane accident, her only son. She was a devout Roman Catholic. And the bitterness in her voice. How could God do this to me? I've been to Mass every single week. I do. I, I pray the rosary every day. I've done everything I know to do. And I've got one son. And at 30-some years old, God takes him away in an accident. And just bitterness... Well, if you think that that's the relationship you have with God, that's the only option you have, you see. If God takes away things that you think he owes to you, well, you're going to be bitter. Who wouldn't? But that's just a false assumption. Works, you see, precludes grace. There's no grace there. So when Joseph Smith says, if you obey the law and love God with all your heart and soul and mind, his grace is sufficient. And the question is, sufficient for what? What do you need grace for if you kept the law? Just go get your reward. But Paul says that's not how it works. The, the one who does not work but believes, the one, him who justifies the ungodly, to him it is counted righteousness. To the one who does not work. Basic principle of the gospel. You see, Paul is setting effort and faith, not effort. Work and not work. Trying hard and resting hard. In Jesus Christ. God's blessings do not go to those who work and strive and try hard to deserve them. God's blessings are given as a free gift to those who receive them by faith. God's blessings are not gained by your endeavors to do favors for God. It is, they are gained by God, by allowing God to do favors for you. That's how it works. You see, and this is, this is again, the, the fundamental distinction between Christianity and every other religion. The goal of religion, every religion, even atheism. Well, I don't want to get untangled that one. Every religion. <laughs> Atheists have their own moral code, and they have their own way of justifying themselves, right? They just don't put God in the picture. They're, they're, they're God. 
But you see, the, the goal of religion, and I, you could say even atheism, is to create responsible people who strive to improve themselves, thus manifesting the glory of themselves and their religion. Every religion to create responsible, spiritually serious people who strive to improve themselves, thus manifesting the glory of themselves and the glory of their religion. That is not the goal of the gospel. The goal of the gospel is to create worshipers who acknowledge their bankruptcy, who live by faith in Jesus who died for them, them thus manifesting the glory of God. It's all about him. So to the one who does not work but believes. You see, friends, the Bible has a message for you. For all the harried, guilty, burdened people trying somehow, some way to atone for your sin, trying somehow to find peace for your soul, trying in some way to gain the love and approval of God by your efforts, the message of the Bible is stop. Just stop. For the love of God, stop. Stop striving to gain the approval of God. Stop punishing yourself in an attempt to atone for sin. Stop trying to make up for it. Stop doing your religion. Stop trying to to, uh, get God to to, to somehow be gracious and kind to you. Just stop. Hear the gospel that, that says, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Come to the waters, all you who are thirsty. Come, you who have no money. Come buy wine and milk without money and without cost. Come and hear who God is. He's the God who justifies the ungodly, unabashedly, unashamedly. God looks the ungodly directly in the eyes. And before the, uh, uh, the, the court of heaven, before the angels of heaven, before the demons of hell, God looks at you, the sinner, and says, innocent. And he delights to do so. Because it's his nature. He's a God of grace. He's a God who justifies the ungodly. God, the one who created you, the only God that actually is, the God before whom you and I will stand on that last day. That God justifies. He declares once and for all in the divine court of justice that you are innocent of all wrongdoing. You're innocent of all charges. You are acquitted. You are righteous before the holy law of God, and there is now no condemnation for you left. And he does that for the ungodly. Godly, the wicked, the Greek can also be translated the impious. People like Robin Williams who are plagued with guilt because they're guilty. People like the publican who Jesus talks about goes to the temple but he can't even lift his eyes to look but, but bows his head and beats his breast and pleads, Lord have mercy on me, the sinner. People, you see, who've broken God's law on purpose, knowingly broken the law. People like you and me who've sinned grievously with our minds and our bodies, our mouth and our hands and our sexual organs, murderers and racists, thieves and rapists. These are the ungodly whom God declares innocent and righteous. Now we're used to hearing that, but let that explode into your sort of self-righteous fabrication of a religion that, that that we all are still tainted with. You see, for the Jews, this is a bomb in the courtyard. God justifies the ungodly, God justifies Gentiles, the wicked, the pagans, those perverse people. And Paul says, yes, 
That's, that's our God. Now, this is an unflattering word for those who call themselves Christians. It means, you see, that Christianity is for ungodly people. I, this past week, one of the pastors in, in our class was talking uh, um, about he had, there was a committee in their church, and they were talking about how do we help people sort of respond to the, to the messages, and, and they, someone came up with an idea, well, let's, let's have a prayer room, and we'll have a little table set up there, and we can invite people just down the hall. Uh, there's a prayer room, and if you'd like to go and, and have the elders pray with you, we, we'd encourage you to do that. Well, one of the a lady said, I think that's a good idea, but I have to say, I would never go in there because people would think that I had a problem. You know that fear, don't you? You've, you've maybe thought, boy, there are times I would like to just come and be honest about my issues, but what would people think? I mean, I'm glad there are things like James Fellowship and counseling for people and but I wouldn't go there because people would, would think I have a problem. Well, allow me to let you in on a little secret. Uh, if you're in here, we already know. If you claim to be a Christian, you've already confessed that you have a problem. That you're a wicked, vile person by nature and you cannot save yourself. So we know it's okay. We have good news for you. In spite of your problems, which are greater than you know, God justifies the ungodly. Let's let this be the place where um, it's the most honest thing we do. And anything else, in any other place where we confess our sin, it's not as real and raw as what we do right here. We come, and we're not nice, cleaned-up church people. We are really, truly the ungodly who desperately needed Jesus, or we will go to hell. And that's why we're here. It's the only reason we're here. Because we need Christ. What does God give to the ungodly graciously? Well, he gives grace. He gives pardon. He gives righteousness. David quotes from Psalm 32, just as David also speaks of the blessings of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. Blessed is the man whose lawless deeds are forgiven. Did he do lawless deeds? Absolutely. He, he slept with, his, with, with one of his men of honor, and then he had the man murdered, a man who was willing to give his life for David. A man who's had every blessing that God could give to him. In fact, when God comes to him through the prophet Nathan, God says, why did you despise me? If you, if you lacked, just ask for more. Have I been stingy with my gifts to you? And David is crushed against you. You only have I sinned and done this evil thing in your sight. That you're proved right when you speak and justified when you judge. If you were to open the, the, the ground like you did with Korodathan and Abiram, and I would be swallowed whole and plummet to the depths of hell. hell. God, you would be righteous, but blessed is the man whose lawless deeds are forgiven. The man whose sins are covered, blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. That's the truth. That's our hope. And friends, how is it possible? How is it possible that God could justify the ungodly? The answer is found in Romans chapter 5. If you have your Bible, just turn over to Romans chapter 5. How can God justify the ungodly? We have the answer in verse 6, Romans 5 verse 6. For while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died 
for the ungodly. He died for the ungodly, the impious. People like you, people like me. Verse 8, God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we've now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God? See, the wonder of the gospel is that God has found a way to declare the guilty people innocent, and that is by he took all their guilt and he laid it on his innocent son, and that son went to the cross and atoned and suffered the wrath of God for the sin. So the law is satisfied. God can be just and the justifier of the ungodly. It's not legal fiction. It's not a metaphor. It's not a story. In the, in, the, in the real spiritual world of things, this transaction has actually taken place. It's objective and true and real. And you can appeal to it with your objective, true, and real sin. And you can have covering there in the objective, true, real righteousness of Jesus Christ, freely given by the grace of God to those who confess and come to him. Your sin laid on Christ, Christ's obedience and perfection laid upon you. It's true, it's real. Marvin Olasky wrote an article for World Magazine several years ago. He was speaking with a pastor in Turkey who had been converted from the Muslim religion. Uh, Ahmad Governor, age 39, he would converted to Christianity 13 years ago. He said, I saw that uh, we cannot be saved by fulfilling the law, only by the promise that God made to Abraham, exactly what Paul's talking about. Ahmad says, the Quran says, do this and do that, and maybe you'll be saved. The Quran guarantees salvation only to those who die on jihad, on holy war. That's the only guaranteed way of salvation. Go and, and uh, be killed in this holy war. But the Bible says that we're saved for sure by the grace of God. The Quran guarantees salvation, you see, to those who engage in holy war, who bring death to infidels, who serve as agents of God's wrath on the disobedient. Oh, thank God for the gospel where we read of the Holy Son of God who engaged in the holy war, not by destroying infidels, but dying for them. Not by bringing God's wrath upon the disobedient, but by bearing God's wrath for the disobedient. Not being an agent of anger, but an agent of love and grace and pardon. And by his atoning death, he makes sinners right and righteous. That's the gospel. What difference will it make? Well, it depends if you believe it. If you don't really actually believe it, it won't make any difference at all. Whether you commit suicide, as Robin did, unfortunately, or you commit your own suicide by just keep doing your religion, the end is the same. You have to receive it. Friend, if you're despairing because of your guilt, this gospel is an open door to pardon and peace, real pardon of all of it forever. If you're weary, just wore out because you've been working so hard to please the Lord, would you please stop and rest? Come to the God who justifies the ungodly. Take that promise. Take that claim. Take that character of God on your knees before the throne of grace and come to the Savior who died for the same. And let the fear and the guilt and the shame be rolled away and then worship. 
than worship. John Bunyan writes in his Pilgrim's Progress of the the day when the pilgrim made his way to the cross and, and finally was able to let his burden go. It fell off his back. And it rolled away, as you know, rolled into the, into the empty tomb. And Spurgeon writes this, Thus far did I come laden with sin, nor could aught ease the grief I was in, till I came hither. What a place is this? Here must be the beginning of bliss. Here the burden fell off from my back. Here the strings that bound it to me cracked. Blessed cross, blessed sepulcher, sepulcher blessed rather be the man that there was put to shame for me. Bless Jesus, who bore your sin and my sin. It's our only hope, it's our only boast, but it's true. Let's rest in it. Oh God in heaven, we live in a world gripped by sin and darkness and death. And we live in it, Lord, as sinners by nature, by birth. But Lord, sinners who've been brought out of the bondage, not by anything in us, but by your grace and mercy. And you gave us to Jesus Christ. And on the basis of his righteousness, you justified us because you're the God who justifies the ungodly. Lord, we need to receive that truth deep down so that the guilt and the shame and the condemnation that we so easily feel can be just washed away. Forgive us, Lord, for pretending to be okay. Forgive us, Lord, for thinking the gospel isn't, isn't true. And uh, we've come to believe, blessed uh, are those who believe and then work hard. When you promise that the blessings are for those who believe and rest. And then, Lord, as we rest, you change us. And you sanctify us. So, Father, you know our hearts better than we do. Father, you know those here today who've never really come face-to-face with this gospel because maybe they've never come face-to-face with their sin and the reality of a holy God and a perfect law that will not be broken. Oh, God, help us to deal with the realities of God and sin and death and hell and gospel. And then in the gospel, glory in Jesus Christ. Glory in his righteousness that is a free gift given to us that can never be taken away. The gift that changes everything. Oh God in heaven, I pray that your spirit would give us that grace. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.